Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is somebody who developed a lot of symptoms after the birth of her second child. These were very non-specific, and a diagnosis could not be made. Then one day, she actually had a heart attack, went to hospital, and was still considered as having something more benign. It was only a little bit later that the diagnosis of spontaneous coronary artery dissection was made, and that started her on a journey that may well lead to a change in the way that we practice healthcare forever. My guest on the podcast today is Catherine Leon. You're very, very welcome to the show, Catherine. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you today. And I want to start back in 2003 on your journey with this spontaneous coronary artery dissection. You had that after the birth of your second child, and yet the diagnosis was delayed. What happened? Yes. And thank you for having me. First off, I'm enjoying this time just to meet you in person and know so much about you. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity. In 2003, I was at a moment where I thought, you know, my childhood dream of being a mom of these two healthy little kids was going to be my, you know, be fulfilled. And it wasn't a dependency. Um, my older baby was 20 months. He was doing fine. My delivery, you know, was, I was not scheduled for a delivery. I was just going with it. And we had had a snowstorm, but nothing particularly stressful. And then when I had the baby, all of a sudden I didn't feel great. My first son was 20 months old. My second son was just fine. I can't pinpoint anything that was off on that. No real stressors in life, you know, just taking care of the one baby. I had worked part-time for a while, but had wound that down and was going to be focused just on having the children. We had a snowstorm and they wouldn't plow our cul-de-sac, but that was not a big deal. (laughs) And uh, my delivery seemed to go okay. And then for we. 10 days of feeling fine, I just started to wind down. And I I always describe that as like a little toy car or figure where you keyed it up and then it just grinds to a halt. I was making very, you know, inconsistent and not rational decisions about caring for the kids. I felt like I had a gray screen over my eyes. I would pass out while I was nursing the baby which was terrifying because I probably could have smothered him. And every doctor I spoke to, because I tried, I kept saying, I really don't feel well and I don't know why. And they all were like, well, you know what? You got two kids under two. You know, you just relax, enjoy this time, enjoy your baby. And nothing helped. And I just tried, you know, talked to my primary care doctor, the OB, the pediatrician, the lactation consultant, I just kept talking to the people that I thought would have an interest in helping me and they didn't recognize what they were seeing. And now I know why, because that's how it was for every woman probably around the world. But at that time, I just thought, oh, you know, nothing's wrong. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And then one day I I had been trying to prepare for a family picnic. There were some family members in town and again, totally you know, incoherent brain. I was trying to do a a pulled dish, a a meat dish, and I hadn't cooked it all the way through, obviously. 
because <laughs> I couldn't do the part where you made it into the sandwich meat. And I remember thinking, oh, I'll just take a nap. And when I woke up from the nap, I just felt horrible. I had this pain in the back of my head. There was time to nurse the baby. So I got him, I sat on the couch. And as I did that, all the classic symptoms I'd ever heard of happened. Like I had the crushing chest pain, shortness of breath. I had a pain in my upper back, which was new to my awareness, numbness in my arm. And I just remember thinking, I'm going to drop the baby. I just, that was all I could think about was my arms aren't working and I'm going to drop him. And by a stroke of good luck, my husband came home early, but again, he didn't really know what was going on. This was not something on his radar. So he was kind of like, oh, you know, put the baby in the little crib and, you know, <laughs> if you can't breathe, go do your inhaler. Or, you know, he just, he was trying to fix little spot fixes. And I finally just said, you got to call an ambulance because I just, I think I'm dying. And I, it was the longest five minutes of my life because we lived not too far from an emergency department and I could hear the siren getting louder and louder, but I just was sitting there staring at the wall thinking, what is happening? You know, what is going on? I'm dying. I just knew it. And then strangely with SCAD, there'll be a, a moment where you it, it, it seems, and I've heard the story from other people too, like you're, you're in excruciating pain and they start to transport you or what have you. And then you get this lull. So by the time I had been evaluated by the EMTs, and of course they were focused on, you know, what drugs I was taking, which was a prenatal vitamin. I wasn't taking any drugs. And, you know, they were kind of like, well, you know, you're really young, he's healthy, but we definitely could take you and get you checked. Can you walk downstairs and get in the ambulance? <laughs> and our house had a 13 stair flight to get to the ground level. I was like, sure. <laughs> you know, I guess if they think I could walk downstairs, I'll walk downstairs. So I did. I walked down, climbed up on the gurney and they shoved me in the ambulance. I mean, when I think back, it's just unbelievable to me. And that's when I had that feeling of, okay, well, I must be fine. Nobody's upset. I'm embarrassed. But they took me and the ER evaluated me for pulmonary embolism, which was, I guess, the most logical choice for a young, you know, 38. I was 38 at the time. So youngish mom. That was fine. And, you know, they had done one blood draw and EKG and were kind of like, yeah, no, if you don't have any family history, which I was not aware of any at that time. They were like, no, just go home and see your primary care doctor in a couple of days and get your gallbladder checked and, you know, maybe make sure you've got your asthma under control and been an issue for years. And that was it. So from there, I was obedient. I made my appointments and scheduled everything. And same thing. The primary care doctor was like, you know, no, you're fine. Here's a new inhaler and Monday, go get your gallbladder checked. So that Saturday, so we're talking about, you know, just like a three-day span there, I had even worse symptoms. But because it was, you know, the company in town and all that, I just kept focusing on getting through the day. And my mom was there helping babysit. And finally, when I leaned over to bathe the babies, that's when I got that impending doom sensation people talk about where, and just the, just the pain, you know, up into my jaw and just knowing that this was it and saying goodbye and thinking, you know, this is it. I remember saying goodbye to the toddler. I have no recollection of the baby. 
And my husband just drove me, you know, through the lights to get to the hospital. And that time I was lucky because a woman doctor looked at my tests from the Wednesday and said, you know, I don't think this is normal, quote unquote. You know, a lot of times I think a doctor will interpret something as quote normal for you, but they had no baseline. I'd never had a cardiac workup. So there was no way to assess whether Wednesday was normal for me or not. Doctor said, no, this is suspicious to me. I'm admitting you and repeating everything and doing some more testing. So, you know, I, I was in over the weekend. I had an echo. They tried to get me on a treadmill. <laughs> I was like, I am not getting out of this wheelchair. Nobody said treadmill to me. And again, I don't even know what a treadmill test is, but just the idea of going from how I'd felt to getting up and trying to run in front of <laughs> a doctor to prove my heart was fine. I was like, no, I'm not doing it. So they took me back. And then on Monday, I actually had the cath. And of course, because I was fine, everybody kept assuring me and in whatever it was, it couldn't possibly be my heart. You know, I kind of got bumped through the day. So by the time they saw the emergency situation, you know, the team had already kind of left. They were in the parking lot and got called back to do my surgery. So what they had seen on the cath was that I had a 90% blockage of my left main artery and then lower down a smaller blockage. But the decision was made to do open heart surgery for a double bypass to repair it and hopefully fix me up and send me on my way. So that's what they did. (laughs) That sounds like a nightmare. And first of all, I'm so pleased that you made it and that you're here to tell us the tale because potentially you might not have been if this had worked some other way. But I'm fascinated by your story before you ended up in the hospital, just before they told you, oh, it could be your gallstones or or something like that. (laughs) What was going on with you that you were so unwell? Have you managed to work that out? Do, Do we understand why patients are unwell in this vague way before the event? Nothing concrete. And as research has been conducted, I personally think what it is, is the form of dissection that I had, or rather the result of the dissection. So I would say that some people, the artery tears, and it's like an immediate blockage, either of the artery flap or, you know, maybe a very severe increase in the hematoma between the layers that would cause that immediate blockage. I think in my case, maybe it was a slit tear that gradually allowed the blood to seep and grew and grew and grew, maybe over those few weeks to then form that 90% blockage to where all of a sudden I had gone from like winding down to nothing. And then, you know, when it's blocked, that's, there you go. (laughs) You're going to have that heart attack sensation. So that's my sense of it. Because if you look at SCAD patients across the spectrum, we're pretty much the last person you would expect to have a heart attack. We're typically a a health, healthy weight, follow a healthful diet, or at least try, you have exercise throughout our lives, maybe some more so than others. There are some people that are a more intense uh, physical fitness fan. And there's some thought that maybe that excess uh, physical stress might be a culprit. 
But then there's also more of a kind of emotional stress situation that we think that could be a cause for some people. And then you've got like the perfect storm of a pregnant woman whose body's completely out of whack with some potential emotional stress because they won't plow the (laughs) cul-de-sac on your due date. (laughs) And then just that sheer physical stress. So there's a range of situations that we look at. But to your question of like, what's, what's the cause of it? And what's, you know, what's the secret of identifying it in someone who seems healthy? Still the $64,000 question. Yeah, that's the worry, isn't it? That you've got today, I'm sure, there'll be somebody somewhere around the world who's experiencing all of these symptoms and who'll be told, it's your gallbladder. Because that's the best guess Mm -hmm. for somebody, young woman, just had a baby, as you say, all the stressors, and then she's presenting with these vague symptoms until and unless she presents with the full-blown myocardial infarction, heart attack right. symptoms and has the, the strange echocardiogram and the strange coronary angiogram or whatever else has yeah. to be done to make the diagnosis. Okay, uh, well, first of all, again, congratulations on having made it through. <laughs> it's fantastic that yeah. you were here to tell the story. Where did you go after that? So having had that experience, having had the diagnosis and the treatment, what happened to you after that? I think, you know, immediately after was really rough because we'd, first of all, had these two babies to take care of. And then, you know, because we were in this house that had all the stairs, when my husband had an opportunity to move us around the corner to a single level house, we took that opportunity, but that meant a move and a renovation. And again, that was, it was a stressful time. I had help, fortunately, family members and people stepped up for us. But it was just getting my brain wrapped around the attitude and the dismissiveness, I think, of the people that I was entrusting my life. You know, it was kind of like, as I say, you know, I, I was coming at this as somebody who'd never really had, I'd had childhood asthma and I'd been hospitalized when I was a baby and for two deliveries of babies <laughs> myself. But that was it. I hadn't had a broken bone. You know, I didn't, you know, when you should, they're like, go get your gallbladder scan. I didn't even know what that meant. You know, to go from having no sort of awareness of physical health to being this really sick person was just devastating. And I had, you know, of course, I'd had, you know, the sternum had to be you, you don't even really kind of know when you're a hospital that that's what's happened to you. You know, you get home and the first time you see a mirror, you get to realize that you've got this massive scar. And then my leg, I got an infection in that incision from the removal of that uh, vein to use as a bypass graft. So there were lots of hurdles to get over just physically. And as I went through that experience, I kept thinking, I cannot possibly be the only person that's ever had this. Because that was sort of the thing. Like when I went to my follow-up visit, it was like, oh, well, you know, there's no way we would have known this because there's really just one line in the medical textbooks that say something about spontaneous coronary artery dissection. So, you know, it's like we're not trained on it and it's you know, usually so rare, you're never going to see it in your career. So, you know, we, you know, you just have to kind of look at it the same way that it was just one and done. And I kept thinking, well, it happened in my own body. So there's something in my body that predisposed me to have it happen. And the answer kept coming back is, no, no, 
just like twilight zone element of the conversations I had about it early on. And I think that's what made me so frustrated and angry was that I knew it had to be happening to other people. I mean, there's just no way that there could be one person in the world that's having this happen. And the fact that so much research had focused on men, and I didn't know at the time that historically was just the way it was. I didn't realize that women were excluded from clinical trials and that actually female mice were excluded from clinical trials. And that even the if you did happen to have women in a, in a cohort, they would exclude out their results, not, not segregate them out when reporting. So I didn't know all that for years. I mean, I was just going on a leap of faith with these doctors. So when I couldn't find any answers immediately in my own little circle, I started looking outside my circle, really didn't have much luck there and thought, well, okay, I'll give the internet a try. I had not really been an early adopter of all that tech. I'm sure you're shocked to hear that based on my Skype performance. But, you know, I really wasn't familiar with that idea. And I thought, well, okay, if nothing else, I can just at least search and see if I can find women who've been told they've had this. But so my searches were not spontaneous coronary artery dissection. I was just looking like for heart attack in women or women's heart attack or torn artery or, you know, split artery dissection. So over time, I was able to connect with a few people just randomly around the world, but then was able to kind of focus the search through an organization called Women Heart, which is the National Organization for Women with Heart Disease. And as they got more sophisticated with their online platform, moving it to Inspire, then it became a very user-friendly, searchable type of platform where if our little group of SCAD survivors were chatting about something and somebody was in hospital and typed SCAD into the Google search, they would be dumped right into our conversation. So that was the the really exciting period where we went from three people to like 84 people. And some of those were family members. But it was those 70 patients that I just analyzed in the way that an English major would <laughs> on a Word document and just sort of took a look at, you know, ages, artery affected, uh, you know, was it related to pregnancy, not related to pregnancy, um, any other theories that people were talking about. And I just kind of kept tabs on all that and felt that someday I would encounter a doctor or researcher who would be interested in looking at SCAD. Because as far as I could tell and anybody else on the Inspire Women Heart platform, there there was no research. And this was this was from by the time I recovered and then started actively searching, this was around 2007. So that was like a four to five year span. 2007 isn't that long ago. I'm really astonished. But I'm also struck by something that the way you're telling the story resonates so much with so many of our podcast guests who talk about taking the reins because somehow they say they were left to flounder at sea, as it were. Yes, you've had this rare disease. Too bad. It just happens to be the way it is. Off you go. We'll do what we can for you, and they then reach out. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking of people like Bo Bigelow, I think, whose daughter had a rare condition and did exactly what what you did, which is go online and find other people, and then from there create 
the platform that leads to a better understanding, not only for yourself, but for everybody else. Where did it go from there? That's a great point about the rare community because there are so many people out there with far more intricate and complex situations, especially for the babies and children. I always, that always just tugs at my heart. But yes, you, you, I don't think when you're in the moment, you really feel like, I just always felt like I was doing what had to be done. I didn't really think about it like I was destined to do it or whatever. I felt like I was destined to survive to raise my two children to adulthood. Or actually, at first, I just wanted to get them through high school. That was kind of my goal was to live live that long. But when I felt comfortable with the kind of data that I have, snapshot, and it it was fascinating to me because when I had mine, I was told it was a pregnancy complication. And yet the first two women that I talked to were not anywhere near having had a child. And then as time went on, we ran into some men who I didn't even believe at first. I thought they were just there <laughs> looking for a date or something <laughs> on a women's chat community. <laughs> so, you know, it, it just to me was very interesting. And the Women Heart uh, Organization had a training out at Mayo Clinic to kind of educate yourself about the heart. Because again, I had no, you know, no basic science information, options for, you know, communicating with others and also, you know, supporting my community back at home, you know, women's heart disease and making that more of a platform for myself. And then coincidentally, when I looked into the program some more, I realized that Dr. Sharon Hayes, who was the founder of the program and ran it, was just the type of person who would be a, a ray of hope for somebody like me, you know, that she was focusing on women's cardiovascular health and that this might be something that would interest her. So as part of my time out there, I was able to speak with her and, you know, share the fact that there were these 70 commonalities and theories and that I'd been tracking them and I'd be happy to share it with her. And it just kind of blossomed from there. It was Great timing in terms of the technology of the internet and social media and the fact that Mayo was such a forerunner in that sphere. So it was just kind of a aligning of the stars, really. And they were able to launch a virtual registry based on this pilot study that we did of bringing people together through social media to participate in political studies. So that was, that was like the first step and was exciting and wonderful. And then from there, as they went off and on not only the virtual patients who were sending in their information, but finding some information within the Mayo, you know, the database of Mayo, which is enormous, <laughs> that kind of laid the foundation. And then from there, we realized that around the world, similar things were happening. Jacqueline Saw in Canada, Dr. David Adlam in UK, folks in Spain, Italy. And the more you look for SCAD, the more you realize it is kind of an interest around the world and we just need to bring people together. So that became the driving force for SCAD Alliance, which is the nonprofit that I co-founded with a fellow uh, patient, a SCAD sister, as we say, <laughs> Rachel Doucette, and uh, in 2013, because our thought was that research is a tremendous need. But we also were seeing how long research takes and how difficult it is to get it to the clinicians to support the patients and the family. 
So we thought if we could create a collaborative organization that sort of tried to float that initiative for a couple of years, that we could be getting whatever information there was out to the patients so they could be educating the clinicians. Because, you know, most of the people in at least the country that, you know, I'm encountering, they, they don't have a doctor who knows about SCAD. And we felt very motivated to try to change that. Then, of course, the more we reached out, you know, one of the ways that we did it also was to go to professional conferences. Like, you know, we go to the American College of Cardiology every year. We go to emergency medicine conferences and nursing conferences. But when we're out at ACC and we have our exhibit booth and we're talking to folks, they're like, well, how, how do we get involved? How can we participate in some research? And for years, we didn't have that opportunity for them. But then through the initiatives of our scientific advisors, primarily Dr. Esther Kim, um, who you did an amazing interview with, and Dr. Melissa Wood and Dr. Sahar Nadari, we um, you know, pinched our pennies <laughs> and created the multi-center ISCAD registry because we felt that that was really the only effective way to ensure that SCAD knowledge gets out across the country in a network to the patients. And again, gives the patients the opportunity to participate in the clinical studies as well. Because obviously, if we don't have anybody to study, we can't get the answers that we need. Thank you. That's another amazing story. And I'm marveling at the fact that you don't have a medical background. That <laughs> At this point in time, when you had this and you decided, I'll go and do some research and I'll put my feelers out there and see who's out there who has a similar illness, you did not have that background. And yet you were able to find that community of patients and then go back to the doctors and say, there's a very interesting thing that's going on here. Did you know about this, these people? The story resonates with my story and my trajectory. And that changed in a lot of ways, the outcome for many, many patients, I'm sure, with SCAD, because now it's a recognized condition and and people around the world are talking about it. When you reflect on that, what do you think were the lessons for anyone who has another rare illness or for SCAD patients themselves? Oh, wow. Well, the first, when you first started describing that question, the first thing I thought of was that I'm very fortunate because I, I come from very stubborn people. <laughs> my, my, my ancestors are Irish and Norwegian. <laughs> And good people, you know, salt of the earth. My grandparents were dairy farmers and I spent a lot of time with them. And then my mom and dad were very, our, my dad is deceased, but very intelligent people. Mom was a teacher and my dad was a, um, a dentist, a career dentist in the Navy, an endodontist. That's sort of my non-scientific background. To be curious, I think, is what he gave me. And to, to not just accept something at face value and be like, oh, okay, you know, whatever. And I think from my mom and my grandparents, just the idea that, you know, we're on the planet to make it better for the next one. I don't, I don't really know how else to say that, but just the idea that, you know, even, even sometimes talk to folks about the research, it's not going to help me because it takes so long. But really, that's not the way to look at a clinical study. It's, it's, it's the fact that you can take your own experience and actually maybe save lives. And if nothing else, just improve the process for someone else. So I just do feel like we all 
if we survive it, we do have an obligation to give back that way. So that would, that, I guess that would be my message to people struggling through the early days of SCAD is that to know how many people like me there are around the world trying to make this a thing of the past and to improve for everyone. So like take hope in that and then know that you're going to do okay. You know, we know enough so far to believe that, you know, if you've made it through, you have, you know, whatever characteristics that is within yourself to and through the help of science right now to survive and thrive. But then please do participate in the clinical studies to help, you know, help us figure out what the answers are. Yes, I can see that. And I framed it in that way because I believe that you are at the forefront of changing healthcare forever. And you're right. You do not have to have a medical degree. You have to be stubborn. You have to be, <laughs> you have to be passionate and you have to be curious and you have to have respect for science because science ultimately is the way that we can start to unpack what's actually going on, understand it and make a difference. That is wonderful. And I think that we're hearing the story increasingly on this podcast that patients can make a huge difference by sharing their story and by doing all that you've done. You've really set a path for people to follow. So where to from here for the SCAD Alliance and how is your work going now? Oh, goodness. One thing I want to tag on to what you said there too, though, is the collaborative spirit of the clinicians that we've been fortunate to engage with. Because that that's really what the difference is, I think, in the SCAD story, is that you have just this phenomenal group of clinicians who they're not really paid for what they're doing to help us. Definitely not for participating with SCAD Alliance and the iSCAD registry. This is all volunteer for them. Um, and then, of course, their interest and passion is exhibited at their own institutions, then they do their own novel work that's so exciting as well. But that's sort of a key element, too, I would say, to any rare community that's trying to do a similar thing is to really take an integrated, diverse focus on your scientific advisors. Like, try to find those people across the spectrum who share that passion. And that's that's what we've done is try to build a team that's across a variety of interests. You know, we look at the psychosocial piece in terms of the patient. We look at reproductive issues, vascular issues, the genetics of it. Of course, the cardiovascular piece. We bring in the emergency medicine folks to talk about the different phases of the process of, of the SCAD experience. And then, you know, onward into what you might encounter later in life after you're no longer really a SCAD patient, but then you're encountering the regular heart disease that you <laughs> develop over the span of your lifetime. So it really is a different lenses to look at it and, and do the best work. So SCAD Alliance, we're continuing with our, we have several programs. You know, we have the patient support programs I mentioned earlier. This past year, they, they went online to Zoom like everybody else did. <laughs> and we have a webinar series called Ask the Experts that focuses on specific topics related to SCAD patients. And it's on our YouTube channel. Then the, the biggest project, of course, is the iSCAD registry. Right now, we have 17 sites across the U.S., four in the wings getting ready to enroll. Over 644 patients at last count. 
And again, it's just this whole concept of at least one site per state for starters and trying to build this network of expertise. And hopefully, you know, as we get out of the pandemic and, and people are more settled and back into their real lives, you know, we'll be able to do our first paper. So we're excited to work toward that. But we're we're always looking for opportunities to speak about SCAD and to also support. So I would say if anybody out there is a clinician who feels that maybe they've had a patient that they want to, you know, send our way to get more information, that's wonderful. If you're a clinician who's interested in iSCAD registry and studying SCAD, we can connect you with Dr. Kim <laughs> and have a conversation as well. But we just we just want to keep moving the needle and just trying to collaborate within our our sphere of influence right now and then eventually, you know, try to partner with other researchers around the world because seriously, the more diverse we can make our data and our understanding of how SCAD affects people because we do believe, you know, it's across the spectrum. We don't think that SCAD discriminates. You know, some people have laughed that it's a blonde, blue-eyed person disease. I don't really believe that. I think that it doesn't discriminate, which is sad, but it also gives us the motivation to reach more people across the country. You're right. And what you say absolutely is true. Collaboration is the key. Collaboration between patients and physicians. Together, we are stronger. Together, we are louder. Together, we are better. And when you were talking there about your Irish ancestry, I completely appreciate that because I was, as you know, raised in the Republic of Ireland and a country... That is so small, that has 4 million people, has given so much to the world, including people like you, Catherine. I should have guessed with your name. I should have guessed the Irish ancestry. <laughs> well, your accent, I was like, a couple of things you've said, I was like, you're, you're very welcome. I mean, that's just such an Irish thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Irish have given the world very, very many things. And you are one of those wonderful people who are going out to make a difference. And we thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. I enjoyed speaking with you and listening to your other podcasts as well. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of healthdesign.com.